Chapter Seventeen of Mrs. Solomon Smith Looking On by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen says I, young man, you are right. I am a relation. It makes a great difference if you see things with your own eyes," said Mrs. Smith, letting her knitting fall idly in her lap and giving herself up to contemplation. Laura looked up curiously. The observation was suggestive to her of all sorts of quaint ideas in her old friend's mind. "'What did you see, Auntie?' she asked at last, having waited as long as her impatience would allow. "'Why, I was thinking about that great big store. I had heard about them. Jessie, she tried to make me understand. They keep everything, Auntie,' she would say, "'everything you can think of.' but I didn't understand. Well, says I, so does Job Turner. I was down at the corners the other day, and I couldn't help noticing what a sight of things he had. Bars of soap enough to wash the whole town, you'd think. And spools of thread, all colors and all numbers, and calicoes, a splendid stock, and alpacas, and all that kind of goods. And then on the other side you could get molasses, and herring, and eggs, and everything you wanted. He keeps everything I can think of, and a great many things that I can't think of. Jessie, she laughed, and said it was different from that, but she left off trying to make me understand. I thought of it today, and says I to myself, no wonder she stopped telling me about it. She saw that I was such an old goose that I couldn't understand. When I got into that great big store, near where I had such a time crossing the street, I was so astonished for a minute that I couldn't think of a thing I came for. I just stood around there and stared. A whole village full of Job Turner's stores might have been packed in there, and you wouldn't have known it by the space they took up. Another city, that's what it was, and enough sight cleaner and quieter than the one I had just left. For the land's sake, I said at last, to a clerk who came up to me and bowed politely and asked me what I wanted. If you had street cars in here, I think it would be a great deal nicer than the city outside. He laughed and didn't seem to object to my admiring it. He said he had thought himself that sedan chairs would be an improvement. I knew all about them, read about their having them at the Centennial, and I really think they would be nice in that store. I wonder they don't have them. Did you go all around and see the pretty things? Lida asked, with the eagerness of one to whom the outside world had been shut away for a long time. Go around? I guess I did. I believe I must have gone into every nook and corner of that store. I rode on the elevator. That's a nice invention. I've read about them, too and never could quite understand how they were. But I had it all explained to me today, and it was a real pleasure to sit there on a cushioned seat and go slipping softly and swiftly up in the air. I thought it would be a skittish kind of feeling, but it ain't a mite. I wonder if flying will be a little bit like this, I said to the young man who went up with me. I don't know as I was exactly saying it to him, either. I was kind of thinking out loud, but he thought I asked him a question. Ma'am, he said, kind of astonished, and then I thought I ought to explain. 
i was wondering i said if flying through the sky in the clouds would be anything like this you know we can't seem to think how we are going to get our bodies up to heaven i can think of my soul being there but i've been puzzled often wondering about my old lumbering body how it was going to get through the clouds and all and get up there but maybe it will be just as easy when we come to see it and feel it as this going up is holding ourselves still and being lifted without any power of our own i suppose that is it and i'm glad i'm having a ride in an elevator because it somehow makes me remember there are ways of getting me up without any of my help it seems that just common ropes and wheels can do it so when i get my father's hand on the ropes that he means to use i guess i needn't worry well that young man made a queer answer he laughed at first as though it struck him as something funny then his face got dark and sort of fierce looking and he said if he was only sure of his soul getting through all right he wouldn't take time to worry about his miserable body it might go to the dogs for all he should care it wasn't nothing but a trouble to him anyhow then i looked at him close and i saw that he looked sick and miserable and had a hollow cough it was plain enough that his body wasn't going to trouble him long i spoke real gentle i felt so sorry for the poor fellow says i if i was you i wouldn't worry a mite about either of em they're just as safe in your father's hands as that little bit of a bundle is in yours and worth a hundred times more to him than all the velvets and jewels in this store he paid a big price for them and it's more than likely he'll take care of them the thing for you to decide is whether you want him to we had got out of the elevator by that time and was walking down one of the elegant rooms he looked about as gloomy as ever and gave me a real troubled sigh as he said oh well there's no use worrying if a fellow is to be saved he will be and if not he can't help himself says i the first part of that is as true as the last part is foolish you might as well say if a fellow is to eat his dinner he will and if he isn't he can't help himself now it is true enough of course that if he is to eat his dinner he will eat it nobody disputes that but if you fix up a nice dinner for him and he sets down before it and shuts his mouth tight and glowers at it and refuses to swallow a crumb you would be one of the first to say that he wouldn't get any dinner and it was his own fault your heavenly father has spread the table for you young man and now it is your business to say whether you will eat the bread of life or push it away and go hungry well i hadn't a chance for another word he sat me down before the thing i had asked to see and said a word to the clerk to wait on me and then he bowed to me and smiled and said in a low voice thank you and away he went coughing poor fellow i hope he won't insist on going hungry the tears had gathered in lita's eyes but her face was smiling aunt maria she said how did you learn to be different from other people about these things different child why how i didn't have a good many of the advantages of other people when i was young i suppose that makes a great difference 
oh but i mean different in your talk about heaven and well about religion it seems so easy to you nearly all other people whom i have ever heard talk of these things seem to me to drag them in as though they thought they ought to say them but they didn't quite know how and dreaded it awfully well said mrs solomon thoughtfully seaming her stocking i don't know child i've heard folks talk that way myself i never could understand it i've puzzled over it a good deal because i found them very folks could be glib enough about other things sometimes i've thought that the bible explained it when it said out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh at least i find when i've been thinking about a thing until i'm all full of it i kind o want to speak to somebody but then i'm a talkative old body always was solomon is to blame for some of that he thinks a great deal more than he talks and he is amazing fond of hearing me talk over this last explanation we all laughed albeit i think not one of her audience but would have been willing to testify that solomon showed excellent sense mrs smith's thoughts had already gone back to the scenes at the store i met one chap she said who wa'n't a bit like my nice young man that went up the elevator with me he was one of your giggly kind now a giggly girl is bad enough but a boy who laughs at nothing all the time is about as small a specimen as you can find i think it is just wonderful to me to think how the lord has patience with them all it would be so easy for him just to stoop down and wipe them out but then there would be the soul dear me what a pity we can't always remember that now i come to think of it i've been going on in my mind about that silly little chap as though he hadn't any soul and it does seem as though his must have been a small one i wanted to look at some lace i kind of wanted a little bit of the real stuff when i was a young girl i knew a woman who had worked in lace factories she understood all about the different kinds and she could do it beautifully all the fine ladies were after her to mend their laces i always did like lace and i asked her a thousand and one questions and got to be pretty wise about it i could tell the real from the imitation away across a church and can yet well my chap undertook to have some fun over me he saw i was old-fashioned of course and kind of queer-looking by the side of all the fine ladies i didn't blame him for that i got a glimpse of myself in one of them big glasses and either i or the rest of the women must have looked funny to him for we wasn't a mite alike but then he needn't have supposed that because i didn't have on a pleated dress and a hundred yards of lace puckered around it that i didn't know lace when i saw it oh yes grandma says he i've got just the lace you want a very choice pattern is it for yourself grandma i believe it made me rather cross to have him call me grandma i ought to have been glad instead that he was no grandson of mine i answered him kind of short it is for myself until i give it to somebody else i said just so he said and he was ahead of me in good nature well now grandma here's the very thing cheap as dirt and an elegant width 
and he showed me a lot of coarse cotton lace i told you i wanted the real says i real says he pretending to be astonished why i assure you every thread of that is real as much so as any we've got in the store says i i don't doubt it real cotton every thread of it well he bothered me in that kind of way for quite a spell showing me cotton laces of half a dozen kinds and imitation laces calling this machine-made stuff real valenciennes and this cotton imitation real spanish lace until i got out of all sort of patience with him and says i at last look here young man you must get a most enormous salary in this store but i shouldn't think the biggest salary they could offer would pay you for lying at the rate you have to me says i do you know you have told ten lies in the last five minutes i looked right at him and the fellow blushed a little and the clerks standing near who had been laughing in their sleeves at me all the time was just as ready to laugh at him a little these everlasting gigglers are never particular on which side they laugh and in about a minute i felt kind of sorry for him so i spoke a little more softly says i i don't bear you no ill will but for your own sake if i was you i would get out of this habit of telling lies now i knew real lace of almost every kind you can think of long before you was born and it is real lace and no other that i'm after and if you've got any i'd like to see it well all of a sudden the giggling stopped the idle clerks turned to their counters and my young man had a very red face and began to fumble among the boxes pretty soon i understood it there come a new voice on the scene wilkins says he what does the lady want it wasn't exactly a stern voice not cross you know but grave and with a kind of power in it if i'd been the clerk i wouldn't have liked to go contrary to a man with such a voice as that he asked the question right over wilkins what does the lady want in exactly the same kind of a voice looking right at the clerk whose face by this time was as red as laura's worsteds and then i turned and looked at the man for the land's sake says i and then he looked at me and his face lighted up as if i had been an old friend and he held out his hand and shook mine just as if i was his aunt this minute and he was glad of it laura and mrs leonard i wonder if you remember my telling you about a sunday-school convention where i went and took my niece jessie and a nice young man who sat near us and told me things and seated us often and was around a good deal after that well don't you believe this was the very young man here he was one of the partners in that great big store after that it was plain sailing for me he just took charge of me himself i got my lace and everything else i wanted and then he took me all around and showed me everything i couldn't begin to tell you in a week all i saw but dear me i suppose you have been there dozens of times one thing though i must tell you about it is very queer to me that i never heard of it before never read a thing about it you understand it irving i suppose why them great brass pipes that go a-wandering all over that store as large around as my arm 
I saw them before Mr. Webster came up. In fact, I saw them the minute I went into the store, and I'd been watching and kind of puzzling over them all the time. I'd see the clerks put money in a little box and chuck it up through one of them brass pipes. Away it would go out of sight, as if a spirit took hold of it the minute it came near the brass. And by and by, it would come back again, and have just the right change in it for someone who stood waiting. Says I to myself, what kind of witch work is this? Where does the thing go to, and who gets it, and what does it all, anyway? Well, when Mr. Webster began to show me around, I asked him the first thing. What are all them brass pipes for, and what makes them little boxes they put in, fly away, and come back again? Ah, says he, let me take you to the fountain head and show you about it. So we went upstairs, away up to the center of the building, and there, in a little kind of a round office, sat a dozen clerks or more, and those great pipes that wandered over that building and struck off in every direction came all together up here, and those little boxes with money and accounts in were continually shooting out in front of those clerks, and they would take them about as quick as lightning, and look at the account, and make the change, and shoot them back. I never see anything like that in all my life. I just stood still and thought. It made me feel kind of queer. I couldn't say a word. What it is? Mr. Webster asked me, after he had waited a spell, and I suppose he thought I ought to speak. Why, says I, it comes over me all of a sudden, and almost takes my breath away. It makes me think of answering prayer. They are sending up their prayers from all over the store down there, and they come up to this center and get attended to at once, and the answer goes back in all them different directions. Well, he understands things. He is one of them men that flashes at what you mean, even if you're as awkward as a post in telling it. And says he, I see, that is a fact but then it takes a dozen clerks to attend to these pipes up here. The figure isn't quite perfect, is it? Only a dozen, says I, for all them pipes that travel all over this big store, and these are only young, foolish girls to do it, and yet we feel sometimes as though the Lord couldn't possibly attend to all our prayers at once. Then he laughed again, and says he, I see." that must be Earl Webster. It was Mr. Jonas Smith who made this interrogatory remark. He had come in during the talk, and was listening with as much eagerness as any of us. Yes, his sister-in-law explained, it was Earl Webster. He had a good many questions to ask me, she continued, how long I had been here, and where I was stopping, and when I told him I come on to attend my niece's wedding, he looked so kind of surprised or queer or something that I said, and I don't know what made me, it isn't Jessie, it's another niece. Then he laughed outright and said he knew it wasn't Jessie, and then he said he had heard from her lately, and she said I was here, and he had been trying to get a hold of my address. And, well, he kind of got himself mixed up so, that at last, to get it straight, he had to tell me that I must get ready to go to Jessie's wedding in the spring. And there the sly little puss is going to marry him, 
and she never once hinted to me who it was. Going to marry Earl Webster? There was no mistaking the astonishment in Mr. Jonas Smith's voice. Well, Maria, you are to be congratulated, I declare. He is one of the finest young men in the city, one of the first in every way. Yes, said Mrs. Solomon in quiet satisfaction. I know he is as good as gold. I told him about that poor young fellow with the cough, and he was interested at once. He had me walk down the store and point him out, and said he would have a talk with him. He is a new clerk, it seems. One of the giggling clerks stood near where he had seated me while he went to attend to some business, and says he, I guess our grandmother has come, or our old aunt or somebody. Do you see how we are being escorted through the store and shown the lions? Then the other said something I was glad to hear. Pshaw, says he, it may be his washerwoman. Webster is the queerest rich man there is on the face of the earth. Well, I thought I would help them along, and I turned around with that. Says I, young man, you are right, I am a relation. I'm more than his aunt or his grandmother. We both belong to the royal family, and we are brother and sister to the king. End of chapter 17